You want to go ahead and open your Bibles. We'll be in Joshua chapter 10 today. And as you're flipping there, I'd like for us to pray together. But we really need God's help for this one. For all of us to understand this word and to, to respond like we're, some of us are going to need to. This chapter, we're going to need His help. So let's pray. Father, every week we come to you and we ask very simply, please help us to hear your voice and your word. And please work in our hearts so that we would be soft in there and we would change and respond rightly with obedience and humility. And I just ask that you would help me um, just to pull these thoughts together that would be clear, that you would cancel out anything I might say that is not true, that does not line up with your word. As we come into your word, we're coming with expectations, with ears straining to hear your voice, and excited to hear It's in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Joshua chapter 10. Um, this chapter is a perfect example of why I really like to preach through books of the Bible. I, I don't think that preaching through books of the Bible is the only way, but I think that it needs to be primary way that ministers minister to the congregation through preaching. Because when you preach through a book of the Bible, you're at that book's mercy as to what you preach each Sunday. And if I were just picking topics, I never would have thought to pick a topic that we're going to be thinking about this Sunday. It never would have occurred to me. But the more I studied and got into it, this is a hugely important issue for us. For every person in here, and for me, and it's all through the Bible. <laughs> but I never would have thought to preach about consequences and God's character in our consequences. It just never would have occurred to me. But here we are, and I wonder how some of you felt last week. We talked a little bit about God's character and our consequences. Last week we talked about Joshua. He made a huge mistake, he made a covenant with the people of the land. God had told him very specifically, do not make any covenants with the people of the land. But he didn't consult God's counsel. He made this stupid covenant. This chapter, everything we're going to read today, keep in mind, all of this is in the shadow of consequences for what he did. For his, really, his sin of disregarding God, making this covenant, and his foolishness. For just not taking it more seriously. So everything we're going to read today is is uh, under the umbrella, happening within the realm of Joshua's the consequences for living here. So before we get started into the text, I've got five principles about consequences I just want to share with you. Many of these are from the text last week. I'm just going to share them with you kind of quickly so we can get into the main meat of this chapter. Uh, first of all, consequences are not condemnation. When we sin, or when we do something foolish, and we have to face the fallout of that, it's not God condemning us. If you're a Christian, Christ has already taken your condemnation. Romans 8.1 says that there is, because of Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. So if you're a Christian, and you're living with consequences right now, for some sin that you committed in the past, which I know many of us are, that's not God condemning you. It might be God correcting you, but you're not being punished. So consequences are not condemnation. Uh, the second thing, God uses our consequences for our good. 
God uses our consequences. Even though they come from our mistakes and our sin, He uses them for our good. Romans 8.28 says that really clearly. God works all things, including our consequences, together for the good of those who love Him. So if you don't love God, your consequences are not going to feel very good. You're not going to see that He's doing it for your good. But for those who love God, you'll find that even with painful consequences, He's using for your good. Consequences are not condemnation. God uses them for the good of His people. Uh, the third thing, not all hardship is the consequence of some sin that you commit. I don't want people to hear this sermon and to look around and go, man, such and such has had a really rough time. He must have sinned really bad. Or he must have done something really foolish. That's not, that's not the case. Sometimes hardships are consequences. Sometimes they're just the result of living in a sin-wrecked world where nothing works. I mean, look at Job. Job didn't do anything wrong. His life was very difficult. So don't look around and try to figure out what people did to deserve the hardships they're facing right now because they may have done nothing. The fourth thing, attempting to escape consequences will bring about more consequences. Last week, remember we talked about why couldn't the Israelite people just Ignore this covenant that they made and just sidestep the consequences of that and just kill these people. Well, they couldn't do that because Joshua was at least wise enough to know that that was just going to make everything worse. You have to face your consequences. And it makes me think of a guy I met, uh, many of you know, several years ago, I worked for a company called The Mattress. <coughs> I sold bedding. Um, I wasn't very good at it, but I sold bedding. And when I went full-time, they shipped me to Houston, Texas for training. So I was there for, I think, a whole week. I remember right, for training. So when I got down there, I was the only one from our area that went, so I didn't know anybody down there. And they put you in a hotel room, and there's two people per room, so, you know, you're kind of anxious to see what kind of... The mattress firm culture is not the kind of people that necessarily want to share a hotel room with for a week. So I was really eager to see who I was going to be in a room with. And I was just down in sit. And you have to remember, at the mattress firm, it was all young guys. They get you young. And they kind of try to suck you in and, and make you a company person young. <coughs> so all of us at training were probably in our, our 20s, I would think. This guy was really, really old. I mean, he was probably like near 50. <laughs> 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 Repeat that age again. <laughs> you know I'm kidding. Obviously. He's not dressed as, as young as there. He seemed a little out of place. I mean, it was, I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember right. He was the only one who was not as tall. And he's probably actually older. He's probably going to go 60 or so. I'm terribly Um, 
that was the case with Sid. And as we talked more and more, um, another guy who was there, his name was Matt as well, he was a Christian. And he came over to our room one evening, we were just talking about stuff, um, getting to know each other. He was really serious about studying his Bible, um, which I was as well, because I was in Bible college at this time. So we were talking about this stuff. And Sid revealed that he actually used to minister in the church when he was younger. He used to minister. He wasn't like, like me. He wasn't like a vocational minister, but he used to be very involved in his church. But he hadn't gone in a long time. And then when he talked, Lord came out. And he traced it all back to a singular event. How he got out of church and how his marriage became terrible. His unhappiness, as it turned out, was because his marriage was miserable. And we kept talking, and, and he traced it back. There was an event. He and his wife were going to make a big decision. They were going to buy a car. Sid, you know, wearing the pants in the house, he saw the car he liked, and he said, we should get that car. And his wife said, no, we're not getting that car. That is stupid. We're not getting that car. So that was, she shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. Sid's response, as he described it, was he shut down. And from that moment on, he barely said a word. He didn't try to even communicate what his perspective on things was anymore. Basically, he shut down and assumed a lifestyle of power for decades. Now, I can understand, you know, I'm a sensitive guy, you know, I can understand reacting badly when your spouse just sort of crushes you like that all of a sudden and says, no, you're not getting stupid, we're not doing that. I can understand shutting down for a little bit and just you know, powder for a little while, you know, trying to exact revenge on them through being really quiet. But, after, you know, three minutes of that, you got to face the consequences of being challenged. And you've got to say, you know, I didn't appreciate what you said, but I'm sorry, I was, I had like an elementary school kid. We should have talked about it, but instead, I just shut down about it. And it's hard to do that. And I'm sure that all of us have had those conversations, especially us married people. But not Sid. He, he couldn't face the consequence of his initial reaction. He said, I, can't, I cannot go to her and say I'm sorry. The consequence of that was too great. So he kept trying to avoid it. Day after day, he would just keep living this lifestyle. I guess hoping that she would come to him and apologize. I didn't meet her. I don't know what was going on with her. The day after day, until decades had gone by. And it, it had become so poisonous in the house that he, he was he was sick spiritually and emotionally. That's why he stepped back from anything in the church. When we try to avoid the consequences for something stupid or simple that we do, we're creating more and deeper consequences. So consequences aren't condemnation. God uses them for the good of his people, not a hardship. Is a consequence for sin and foolishness. Attempting to escape consequences will bring about more consequences. And the last one, the way Christians should respond to the consequences that we must face is we need to allow the pressure and the stress and the fear of those consequences to press us into the character of God. <clears throat> so when Christians have to face painful consequences, we need to let the pain, the fear, and the anxiety of those consequences press us into the character of God. And that's what the meat of this passage is about. I feel like I need to cover these things so we're all on the same page thinking about this. And when I say consequences, I'm 
talking about are things that we all have to face when we are the ones in the wrong. It does happen. Some of you may not have admitted it for years, but you have been in the I have been in the wrong. I'm sure I've been in the wrong several times this morning. Maybe since I've gotten But the Bible says that we're all sinful people. We're born in sin. Everyone has sinned. And when you sin, there are consequences. Now there's the condemnation that comes. Christ took that. There's the consequences. And I know that we're not all super wise, brilliant people. So I know we also do foolish things. And when we do foolish things, there are consequences. So this is a subject that's not for just a few people who really have screwed their lives up. This is for all of us. So as we study this chapter, just think about yourself. Okay? And I have three points, uh, basically under the subheading of let your consequences press you into the character of God. And we're going to see all these lived out in history. So we're in Joshua chapter 10. I'm going to start at verse 1. We're just going to kind of take in the story of what happened and just observe how God operates with Joshua within the midst of his consequences for his sinful, foolish act. Okay? Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. Now the king of Babylon, Adonizadeh, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gideon had made peace with Israel and with the king of that he feared greatly, because Gideon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonizadeh, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hohan, king of Hebron, and to Piran, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the kings of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, and the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of the king of Lagish and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gideon and fought against him. Okay? So setting the stage, Adam is is a king, and he he I guess he, in the morning he gets up and gets on Facebook and he looks at his news feed and he sees Gideon signed a treaty with Israel. It's like, oh no, they didn't. He starts messaging his five friends. <laughs> We're going to attack Gideon. Which is so stupid when you think Because he says right here, Gideon was not a city of weakness. Gideon was a big city, bigger than Ai. And everybody had heard about Ai when they were there. So Gideon was a big deal. It was a big city full of valiant men, valiant warriors. So Adam Isaac decides that because it was a huge city of valiant warriors, has teamed up with the unstoppable army of God that has crushed everything in the path. That he's going to rally some troops and go fight. It seems really stupid to me. I think if I was Cohan, I would have ignored that message from him and said, you guys take that one. But they probably had a close bond because they all got made fun of so bad for their names in elementary school. <laughs> 20 bucks for the first family who names their child Cohan. <laughs> I think they go for a girl or so here we are, Joshua chapter 10, verse 5. This huge force of five kings 
is barreling towards giving because they saw the treatment of Israel. And pick up in verse 6. Then, in response to all this, the men of Gideon sent word to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Gideon is out on a limb. They tricked and lied their way into the covenant of Israel. Because they've done that, they're now in trouble with the people of the land. They've got five kingdoms coming at them now to destroy them. And their only hope is that Joshua and the people of Israel will come save them. If I were the Gideonites, I'd be a little worried that they might be like, I'm not coming to save you. I'm not fighting five kingdoms to save you after you've lied your way into this covenant. They've got to be sweating wondering what Joshua's going to do. In verse 7, we see what Joshua does. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people who were with him, and all their dying women. So Joshua goes. Now remember, this invitation to come and join Gideon in fighting against five kingdoms at once is a consequence for his foolishness of ever signing this covenant. I mean, we've seen Israel be victorious in battle before, but this is different. All those other battles, Israel was just wiping out sinful people of the land. Now they're having to protect some of these sinful people of the land from other people of the land, five kingdoms at once. They wouldn't be in this position if Joshua hadn't sinfully and foolishly neglected the counsel of God and made it an evil come. But he did, and he has to face these consequences. And if Gideon was sweating, wondering what Joshua was going to do, Joshua must have been sweating, wondering what God was going to do. Because if God didn't fight with Israel, they lost every time. They could only win when God was fighting with them. And here they are, fighting five kingdoms at once, because they should have been in that position that they were because of the sin. Would God be there with them? Or would God leave him to his own devices and enemies? In verse 8 and see. So Joshua, in verse 7, we see that Joshua goes, he takes all those men of the Lord and goes. In verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. Do not fear them. The first characteristic of God that I want you to remember from this to press into when you have to face consequences. God is faithful to his people, even in the midst of their consequences. God didn't say to Joshua, no, you, you straight off the path I laid out for you. It's up to you to get back. Good luck. You're on your own. No, he, he rides in the battle with them, into the consequences with them. He's by his side. He's faithful. Are you, are there consequences that you are desperately scrambling to avoid. Have you done something, said something, forgotten to do something, broken something, and you know there's consequences that you need to face and you're scrambling trying to avoid? Maybe you're trying to avoid these consequences and you're so afraid because you don't believe that God is going to be with you in those consequences. Maybe you've come to believe that God is only with you when you're doing what 
have a biblical example of someone who did this, who tried to escape the consequences that he earned, that he activated through his sin. You guys are familiar with David, King David. He's the little boy that slayed the lion. He's been called man after God's own heart in the Bible. Well, this, this man is man after God's own heart. When he was a king, at one point, all of his armies were out at battle. He should have been there with them, but he hung back. And he was on his roof one day. He should have been in battle. He should have been a responsible king. He was on his roof. And he looks down, and he someone catches his eye, and he looks, and he sees this a naked woman bathing on the roof. Now, at that point, he should have turned the other way, gone downstairs, and got the paper out, and just got out of the situation. But he did. <coughs> he looked on. This was a married woman. Not his wife. Until he couldn't stand it anymore, he sent his servants to go get her and bring her to him. And the Bible says that he laid with her. He slept with her. Another man's wife. Now some of you are familiar with this story, but really think about it. This lady, her name is Bathsheba. Could she have said no? I mean, this was the king. This was the most powerful man in Israel. Could she have said no? She probably thought she'd be killed if she resist So in a very real way, this wasn't just adultery, this was right. What David did was horrifically wrong. And think about that being your thought. There are going to be consequences. But does David face those consequences? No, he does not. He sends her home. And then she sends word back to him and says, I'm pregnant. That's a lot of pressure to face up, fess up and face your consequences now. But does he? No. Instead, he devises this whole scheme to bring her husband back from war. Her husband, his name's Uriah. He's a very dedicated soldier serving King David. So dedicated that when David brings him home, he doesn't go to his house, house to see Bathsheba. He sleeps outside of King David's gates. Because he says, far be it for me to go home and be comfortable when my men are still out there risking their lives fighting. I'll stay right here until I can go back and serve Israel and serve King David. So David's like, ah, plan A failed. Does he confess? Does he face his consequences? If you know the story, you know that he does not. He comes up with plan B. He sends her right back with a letter for his commanding officer. Commanding officer opens this letter that says, Send your riot to the front lines. Basically, David indirectly murders Uriah, sends him to the front lines of battle where he will definitely be killed to get out of his consequences, to get out of having to face Uriah and say, I've done this thing. And it works, Uriah's killed, so now, as he's trying to get out of his consequences, now he's committed murder. On top of all deception, on top of the initial adultery slash rape. And he tries to hide it. And luckily, David wrote a lot of the Psalms in our Bible. In fact, he wrote a psalm that reflected how he felt during this time, Psalm 32. And you don't have to flip there because I am amazed that it's already 12 o'clock. And this is now going to have to be a two-part psalm. We'll finish next week. But if you look at Psalm 32, or if you listen to it, in verse 3 he describes how he felt during this time period of his life. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, 
Your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever in the sun. Some of you know that feeling. Where you know you have consequences that you must face, but you will not do it. And so as long as you will not do it, it's like your body is just wasting away. You have no vitality left. God's hand is so heavy on you. It's misery. But look a few verses down. Verse 10. Eventually David does face these consequences. And here we see what he finds in verse 10. When he finally steps forward and faces these consequences, he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. This is an adulterer. It's greatest as strong words, but I look at it, I think, in some sense, the word is accurate. And a murderer. And he says, it's sorrowful to be wicked. But man, when you trust God, even in the midst of crushing certain uh, consequences that you bring on yourself, even there, if you trust God, you will see that loving kindness will surround you in the world. Thank you.